I'm going to read. Has anyone been to the Griffith Park Shakespeare series? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. cool. So it'll be like that, except not because it's a dream. <laughs> um, it's the beginning of a story called You Are Realistic. The last time I saw Jeff on stage was in a dream, a dream of nostalgic contradictions, my private emotions unfurled and exposed by the stark presence of my body among other bodies, all twisting to stay in rhythm with the unstable logic of the dream. In it, I was in Griffith Park for the Free Shakespeare Festival, alone on a square of blankets checkmated by all the other squares of blankets, hundreds of them on which sat other women also each alone in varying postures of boredom. We were all waiting for the show to start. The stage undulated softly before us, and looking closely, I saw its walls were a tangled facade of leotard-clad bodies, their small movements like an almost imperceptible dance. Jeff came onto the stage looking young and impetuous, wearing his usual scruffy t-shirt and expensive jeans, the one with the tricky zipper. A shiver ran through the crowd, and I tensed with it until the play was over in a flash. The wall disassembled into an excited mass of writhing bodies, and Jeff walked off the stage toward me. He moved with a sharp tenacity, his cold, live body cutting like an ice pick through the summer air. His dark eyes glowered with a seductive danger. I stood up anxiously, but when he got close, he transmuted. I realized he wasn't actually Jeff at all, but another guy, one with a sharp, deliberate haircut that looked almost peculiar against his bland, friendly expression. This guy was in his early 20s, a decade younger than Jeff and I, and he had an overeager jauntiness that affronted me. Our eyes met briefly, then still grinning, he walked past me, gleefully holding out his tin bucket for donations. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. So you get the sense of the edginess of the characters that she writes about. And um, I, I had a lot of fun reading that book and s- seeing the different locations in Los Angeles and recognizing them. So um, thank you for that. Uh, Abby's book, The Garden of Small Beginnings, is the next one. And I would categorize this as a funny, laugh like crazy while you dig deeper into the human condition book. So that's, that's my category. So if you want, you want deep and brooding and, and edgy and then laugh while you get, there's a, a bit of a sharpness sometimes with the laughter, but there's an awful lot of laughter in Abby's book. Um, so if you, uh, according to the Washington Post, if you're looking for a summer beach read with meat, this might well be your book. Waxman develops and explores the characters and their relationship in depth with moments of humorous writing. So this, here's the, the blurb on what the book's about. Lillian Jervon? Gervin has been a single mother for three years, ever since her husband died in a car accident. One mental breakdown and some random suicidal thoughts later, she's just starting to get in the habit of this widow thing. At least her textbook illustrating job has some perks, like the gardening class her boss signed her up for. After recruiting her two girls and insanely supportive sister to join her, Lillian shows up at the Los Angeles Botanical Gardens feeling out of her element. But what she'll soon discover, and with the help of a patient instructor and a quirky group of gardeners, is that into every life, a little sun must shine, whether you want it or not. Um, Would you give us a little taste of the book, Abby, please? 
save you two pages if you buy it. It's an investment. <laughs> okay, so this is the prologue. It's been more than three years since my husband died, yet in many ways he's more useful than ever. True, he's not around to take out the trash, but he's great to bitch at while I'm doing it myself, and he's generally excellent company in visibility notwithstanding. And as someone to blame, he's unparalleled, because he isn't there to contradict me on account of being cremated. <laughs> I talk to him a lot, though our conversations have devolved from metaphysical explorations of the meaning of death to generic married conversations about what to have for dinner or who's on the hook for the lost tax returns. When he died in a car accident 50 feet from our front door, I seriously considered dying too. Not because my heart was broken, though that was true, but because my mind was completely boggled by the logistical challenges of living without him. However, it's just as well I didn't, because he would have been waiting for me in heaven and man would he have been pissed. He'd have made eternity feel like forever, I can promise you that. <laughs> I was driving along, letting my brain spiral aimlessly when my phone rang. It was my sister Rachel. Hey, Lil, are you on your way to get the kids? Just the sound of her voice made me smile. I am. Your knowledge of my daily schedule is embarrassing for both of us. I flicked on the indicator, slowed a little for the light and made a turn, all with the phone illegally wedged under my ear. Sometimes I astound even myself. Can you pick something up for me on your way back? Am I coming to your house? Maybe I'd forgotten it wasn't impossible. Well, you might have been. How do I know? Anyway, I haven't seen the kids for a couple of days, and you know how they pine. I laughed. I can honestly say they haven't mentioned you once. She laughed back at me. You know, one day you'll accept they love me more than you, and your denial of it isn't helping any of us move forward. <laughs> I pulled into the carpool line, doing the silent eyebrow raise and smile of greeting through the windshield at the teacher on duty. Look, I admit they're fond of you. What is it you need anyway? Something fundamental like milk, or something more typical, like lubricant and a Duraflame? <laughs> Suddenly, a small palm smacked the window, making me jump and leaving a smear. Its owner, Annabelle, peered in and narrowed her eyes. Her younger sister, Claire, stood behind her, gazing spacely around. Behind both of them, the teacher smiled tightly, telegraphing long-suffering patients with an undercurrent of threat if I didn't get my ass in gear. I hurriedly hit the door open button. I'd hate for her to drag out the death ray on my account. My sister was answering me. I need a pound of bacon, some Parmesan cheese, spaghetti, eggs, a loaf of bread, and a bottle of red wine. And butter, of course. I'll call you back. I straightened my head, dropping the phone on the floor. Do you need help, or can you get her in, Belle? I got it. Annabelle was only seven, but had the gravitas of a 40-year-old career diplomat. She'd been born that way, calmly mastering breastfeeding, crawling, eating solids, and whatever else I threw at her. She regarded the world resignedly, as if we were exactly as we'd been described in the brochure. A little underwhelming, but what can you do? <laughs> she buckled Claire in, struggling with the straps. Too tight? Claire shook her head. Too loose? Claire shook her head, her large brown eyes fastened trustingly on her older sister. Annabelle nodded at her, turning to climb into her own seat, fastening her own harness with the self-assurance of a test pilot on his 50th run, rather than someone with no front teeth and a Dora barrette in her hair. Good to go, she informed me. Claire, I wanted to make sure the little one hadn't lost the power of speech since breakfast. Presumably, I'd have gotten a call from the teacher, but with all these budget cuts. Good to go, cheerio. Okay, smallest planet heard from. I scrabbled around on the floor for my phone and called Rachel back. I put it on speaker this time and yelled at it as it lay in my lap. After all, now I had the kids in the car. Safety first, people. Rachel picked up before it even rang on my end. She's a very busy woman. I watched for a gap in the traffic as I yelled at the phone, Hey, why didn't you say bring me the fixings for pasta carbonara and why can't you stop on your way home? Because I like to give you little riddles to solve, little challenges that keep you on your toes. Otherwise, your brain will atrophy and then who will help the kids with their homework? Are you cooking for us too? I certainly can. I'd be happy to. Why are you shouting at me? I'm not shouting at you. The Bluetooth's broken, but I'm glad you're making dinner. I took a left. 
Are we going to the store? asked Annabelle. I knew she found the store irritating, but was balancing that against the possibility of sudden candy. I nodded. One other thing, added my sister, you'll have to tell me how to make it. And then are we going to Auntie Rachel's? asked Claire. I nodded and then shook my head. My sister was doing her Jedi mind trick, these aren't the droids you're looking for thing. Wait, Rach, let me ask you this. If I'm buying the groceries and making the dinner, why aren't you coming to my house? There was a pause. Ah, that's a much better idea. Thanks. I'll see you later on. She started to hang up. Stop, I interrupted. If you're coming over, you can pick up the groceries. I've got the kids, remember? Oh, yeah. Okay. She hung up. I looked at Claire in the rearview mirror. No, honey. Auntie Rachel is coming to our place. Both kids looked happy to hear it. They really did like her better than me. And why not? She could turn a request for a favor into an invitation to dinner and make you feel good about it. This is the other one. I don't want to show you that cover because that was the hardback cover. Um, so then I'm go- the third book that we're going to talk about today is what I'll describe as the Let's Live Vicariously book while learning about neuroscience and such. Um, the rumpus described Harley and me this way. Let's just say it up front. Bernadette Murphy is a powerful woman, even if she's petite and bird-boned. She survived a childhood with a mentally ill mother. She raised three children. She's a professor, a journalist, a marathoner, an ice climber, a Sierra hiker, and, as she tells us in her gripping memoir, Harley and Me, a brave motorcyclist. This woman has a lot to brag about, and yet, thankfully, she is not casting about for badass cred in this memoir. Instead, we see a woman at midlife who's questioning everything she's ever been taught about gender roles and risk. So I have published four books of narrative nonfiction, most recently Harley and Me. It's a hybrid narrative that combines memoir with research into neuroscience and biology. Um, I'm the author also of the best-selling Zen and the Art of Knitting, so I went from knitting to motorcycles. Go figure. Um, For six years, I served as the weekly book critic for the Los Angeles Times. I'm currently an associate professor of creative writing at um, Antioch University in the MFA program um, and head up the creative nonfiction there. Uh, And I'll read you a little bit from Harley and Me, shall I? Yes. Okay. Um, So the book follows my evolution from being a... Uh, very sort of sedate mom living in the La Crescenta area of Los Angeles, raising three kids, being a, a professor, and then taking a class to ride a motorcycle as research for a novel, and then turning my life on its head as a result of that. So, um, I like my motorcycle simply because I like to ride. I like the feel of the wind in my face and the air slamming my chest. As the air temperature fluctuates, I feel more alive, more aware of my surroundings, shivering when I make my way through extended cloud cover, and then marveling in the sudden delight of warmth when I hit a patch of sun. I lift my face shield so I can smell the chaparral and notice when it turns to eucalyptus and then to more urban odors. The shifting olfactory experience makes me feel like I've never really smelled before now. Grilled onions near In-N-Out Burger and then roasted peppers by El Pollo Loco. A split lemon in the road fills me with its tangy, pulpy scent. The noxious perfume of burnt diesel emanates off to the left. And my favorite, petrichor, that pleasant smell that accompanies the first rain after a long period of warm, dry weather. I like how my helmet squeezes my face so that when I smile, my cheeks jam against the sides of my helmet, making me keenly aware that I am experiencing bliss. I like to shift gears and feel a sense of competence on this machine that so outweighs me. And more than anything, I love the feeling of fear that thrums in my ribcage, coupled with a sense of satisfaction when that fear finally curls up and retracts its claws. Too much of my life has been eaten up by fear, 
too many opportunities missed, worried about how it might look or whose feelings I might hurt or how difficult something might be. I am on that place in my life when a standoff looms, me or the fear. One of us is going to win out and the other will be vanquished, if only for an hour or a day or until the next standoff. But to bow to fear in this moment, I know, is to shrink my life, to contract its borders, to cry uncle. I want to feel all too alive and and chance encountering the divine, to feel fast and vulnerable, powerful and exposed. I want to truly live while I still have breath within me. So if we look at it sort of chronologically, yours is the uh, slightly younger narrator, and then yours is the, the mom narrator, and mine's the midlife crisis narrator. <laughs> so, um, And I'm sure all of us relate to all the different stages of life. Um, so I have some questions, and I thought I'd just throw them out, and then when I'm done asking questions, or if you ladies have questions, we can entertain them, then I'll open it up to the group to see if you guys have some questions. So my first question is that all three of these books are set in Los Angeles, but the Los Angeles of each book is very different from from each other because of where the types of narrators that they are, the ages they are, and where they're hanging out. And I'm wondering um, if each of you would speak to the flavor of the city that um, shows up in your book. What what are the, the elements of it that really make the city come alive and yet show us a different version of the city than you would find in another's book? Hmm. <laughs> Wait, do you want to start? No, you can. <laughs> um, well, I feel like for my book, like uh, one of the things that happens to the narrator is she grows up sort of in a um, like a more working class home but then like moves to the west side so there's this sort of like shifting of location that happens um this doesn't quite answer your question but one thing that i find really interesting about a lot of la literature is because our neighborhoods are so different um you know depending on which book about los angeles you read it feels like a completely different world when like the two neighborhoods could literally be like three miles apart or something like that um so yeah i'll just but, i mean what what neighborhoods are in show up in cake time um well i think the first story it's like koreatown slash like the fairfax area um, by the end, it's like mostly Santa Monica, okay. I think. Yeah, I, it's also been a couple of years, <laughs> and my memory is short. Um, but I, I think, like, yeah, I think that's kind of how it goes. And um, well, that's okay. Go ahead. <laughs> and I, I'm curious, Abby, the Los Angeles. The, the the place that the characters go to do the gardening, does that really exist? Well, yes, and it's based on Descanso Gardens. I love Descanso Gardens, yes. It's a place I used to go all the time with my kids. I adore that place. And they have gardening classes, okay. and they have all that kind of stuff, so it was based on that. Okay. Um, like the hist- I talk a little bit about the history of the botanical gardens very briefly, and that's actually Descanso Gardens' um, background. But um, yeah, so my this book and actually the next one that's coming out and then the one that I'm trying to write now are all set in Larchmont, which is the neighborhood I live in, which is a very distinct 
neighborhood that is really not like any anywhere else. Right. To your point, it's really like like London or like New York, it's like a series of little villages. Right. And because you really only drive from one place to the other, it might as well be islands, right? right. I mean, it's really very different. Yeah. Um, be better if it was islands. But um, <laughs> we should do that. <laughs> um, we should make them islands. Um, yeah, so the, it's sort of about how you, you create a little world for yourself in your micro-neighborhood. You know, and maybe there's your neighborhood where you live, and then maybe there's your neighborhood where, where you, you work. work. But because the protagonists in, in these, the sort of this trilogy are all women, well, the last one is a younger woman, but uh, women with children, they're quite rooted in their area just right. because the school, whatever, because they are. And that's what I wanted to write about. So, um, yeah, it's very much about Larchmont. Right. And the, that feeling of a village in the middle of a large city. And having come from a, another country, how yes. how d was your sensitivity to the area you were writing about different because it might have been a little more uh, unfamiliar to what you had grown up with that you might have paid more attention or maybe I mean I've been here for very long I've actually been here now longer than I lived in England okay okay so um, I came when I was 21 okay. and I'm now 47 okay. incredibly old I know I look a lot younger but um, <laughs> but I'm you not and, um, but, uh, but I'm really not and um, so. But Larchmont, I think, is, is actually sort of like many other places. You know, it has this sort of sense of community. Yeah. It has a main drag. Yeah. You know, it could be in any number of cities. Which is why it shows up in movies all the time. It looks like any number of other places. You know, it could be anywhere. Um, so hopefully the, the people have sort of universal experiences, mm -hmm. even though mm -hmm. there's a lot of really good baked goods and, you know, <laughs> artisanal hat stores and other nice. bullshit shit like that. Yeah, it's really nice. crazy. But, nice. but yeah. Very cool. Um, and in my book, as I said, the, the narrator starts out in La Crescenta. Do you even know where La Crescenta is? It's the foothills Glen above Ridge. Glendale. Well, I'm sorry? Kind of up, up in that area, but it's a very, it's a, yeah, it's a foothill community above the city. And so it feels very small town, but then the narrator, because it's a memoir, you know, works in Culver City. So there's the, the crossing of the city and um, the, the cultures coming together when the narrator, you know, leaves the kind of quiet, insular world and starts riding the motorcycle and then starts bringing the motorcycle home and seeing the people there look at me like I'm crazy in the midlife crisis. So what I love about Los Angeles is I've heard, you know, there really isn't a literature of Los Angeles. People complain about that, but I think it's not true. Um, I remember when White Oleander came out, um, Janet Fitch's book, and the narrator um, is a uh, foster child and she lives in all the various different neighborhoods and you start realizing if you don't live here reading that book you get a sense of all the different neighborhoods in Los Angeles so I think there's a great literature of Los Angeles and I love that, that we're celebrating that today um, so all three of the books have female protagonists um, but I would not be inclined to call them chick lit um, I think chick lit defines a particular type of book um, and so I'd love each of you to, to address, do you think it's chiclet? If so, why? If not, why not? Where do you think it falls in the sort of continuum of literature, your particular book? All right, I'll go first this time. Okay. Um, okay. And then we'll, get, we'll, we'll go back and forth. Um, I don't really know what chiclet is. I mean, they don't no. say dick lit, right? So no, I presume exactly. they say lad lit. They say what lit? Lad, lad lit. Well, that's lad very, lit. That's okay. very polite of them, isn't it? It's yeah. not. It's not really acceptably equal, is it? It's not the same at all. Um, uh, it's. Uh, I don't know. It's sort of a little bit sort of dismissive. Yeah. Um, 
Not that there's anything wrong with chicks. No. Don't get me wrong. I love a chick. But um, I don't know. It's, I think Chick Lip suggests that it's just very lighthearted and that there's, not, there's hidden shallows. There's nothing deep there. And um, mine is plenty shallow. There's plenty of shallows in this. Don't get me wrong. It's very, very shallow but, and lighthearted. But uh, I, I don't know. I think it's just a way for the media to, to make a shorthand for books that, that aren't worth guys reading you know like it's not you know a man should not bother to read this book it's it's inconsequential right or even because i my impression of the term chiclet um is not even guys shouldn't but thinking women shouldn't you know i mean it's, yeah, it's almost just like it's it's so light so i think that your book you're saying it's it's shallow but i would disagree i mean we've got a character who's lost her husband who's had a breakdown who's dealing with um heavy stuff in a light-hearted way Right, so that's the way she deals. Yeah. the questions of the human condition and how do we make it through this and how does someone survive this? Um, but it, it is handled in a light way, but it is engaging something that's got meat and depth to it. Well, I think that people expect, I don't know, there's sort of this concept, that, this conceit that, that you must suffer, you know, that there is sort of the art comes about through suffering right. inside of the tortured. But I, most of the women I know stoically get on with it you know especially when the shit hits the fan they clean the fan and then they get on (laughs) you know it's not like you know it's not there isn't time to sit around especially if you have children there isn't time to sit around and wallow because the children don't give a rat's ass that you're having a nervous breakdown (laughs) so um, so it's sort of about that you know and if, if people want to call it chick lit Knock yourself out. Like, I don't care what they call it. Right. As long as they buy it. They buy it. <laughs> sure. Well, going along with the buying it thing, I remember wanting a cover that looked chiclet because I did want people to buy <laughs> my book. So I wanted, you know, if, if a woman who likes chiclet walked by, they might see the cover and say, oh, maybe that's a book for me. Um, I think like when you hear the term chiclet, you kind of like, there's the sense that it's like genre fiction, Mm -hmm. that the plot is sort of predictable. It'll definitely have a happy ending. Um, Girl gets the guy, you know, that kind of thing. And I remember like really liking chiclet when I was younger. I mean, maybe I should try reading it again. <laughs> my my taste in music have gone from like, you know, being like, oh, I want to be listening to the serious, new, interesting, avant-garde stuff, and now I'm like, all top forty. I don't want to <laughs> think while I'm driving, kind of thing. So maybe some of that reading might work for me. I mean, I think it's just. I think it. I think, chiclet does what it does very well. You know what I mean? Like, there's definitely, like, a place and a value for it. It's just somewhat different. Um, I think there's a pleasure in uh, in being able to predict what happens <laughs> in some ways. It's not what I write, so I fear that, like, should someone actually pick it up because of the cover with certain assumptions about the book that they would be deeply disappointed and uh, upset by actually reading the book, which is a lot darker than the very pink cover. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think Chiclet makes me think both of the commercial potential Mm. of women's writing 
um, as well as, uh, you know, sort of its marginalization as being less serious. So it's like there's like a push-pull there for me. Right. I think the reason I came up with the question in the first place was when my book came out, um, I had a number of men who read it who were like surprised that they got into it. And I was like, you know, if a man wrote a book that I got into, I wouldn't be surprised by that. But men, when they get into a woman's book, are like, oh, I could relate. Can you believe that? Like, you know, like, yeah, I can't believe that, you know? So um, I had hoped. So my book covers the trajectory of me learning to ride a motorcycle, turn my life on its head. Um, got a divorce after 25 years of marriage, um, moved to the South Pacific and lived in Tahiti for three months, uh, you know, learned to ice climb and rock climb and scuba dive and, and just like, you know, bring it on. Um, but then I looked into the neuroscience of how and why these changes happen to us and looked at the um, biochemical background, uh, particularly for women, how at midlife, when our hormones start changing, uh, we were sort of prepared to be nurturing machines by um, biology for our childbearing years. And when those chemicals start dropping off, like we're, we're done nurturing and just get out of my way. I want to have fun. <laughs> um, and so, and, try, and looking at, you know, what's going on? Is this a midlife crisis or is, is there something else going on? So I had my blood taken before and after riding the motorcycle to find out what, ha- what was happening. Talk to experts in the field to find out what is going on. Is it just a, is it just a midlife crisis or is, it, is this a normal progression? Um, and found out, for those of you who are of any age, but that um, there comes a time where we just totally want to claim our own life and, and live it fully, and we don't care what anyone else thinks, and it's sort of a magical time. But, um, but I was, like I said, I was surprised when so many men were like, oh, man, I totally got into it. And, and the chemistry, even though I, I specifically look at women at certain points, I also look at just risk-takers in general. Why are some of us drawn to risk-taking and some of us are afraid of risk-taking? Um, where do we all fall on this continuum? What does that say about us as, as people and how we're different and how does that change over a lifetime? So that applies to men as well as women. So, But I was a little offended when so many men are like, I can't believe it, but I really liked your book. You know, I'm like, <clears throat> I think that we write for humans and we, sure. we write about the human experience and this idea of sort of ghettoizing women's literature into this category that is only available to women um, does a disservice. So. Well, you, know, you know it's bullshit if when guys write about female characters they don't call that chick lit. Exactly. It's really about exactly. who's writing it exactly. and who's getting paid to write it. Yes. So, you know, it's uh, no one calls Nicholas Sparks chick lit although right. he is the uber chick lit writer. He the is. most chicky, the chickiest of the chicks. Or uh, Kazu Ishiguro, who just went for, um, what's the book in the the school? um, Never Let Me Go. Never Let Me Go. I mean, one of the main characters is a a woman, and it's told from her, and from a young age, uh, you know, fairly young age, and yet, you know, that, that gets... The, the Nobel, was it? What did he just win? The Nobel for Literature gets the Nobel, but um, you know, when women do it, it's chiclet. So, right. yeah. yeah. Um, so, I'm curious because, because our books are very different, um, who you think your ideal reader is, each of you? And I think I read something that, that you write for, um, to entertain your sister? I do. Yeah, so tell us a little bit. And is your sister as absolutely marvelous as the sister in this book is? No, she's awful, and she's sitting right there. <laughs> yeah, no, she's awful. Oh my god, she's terrible. Which is so unsupportive. The one laughing. Right oh, okay. I could, you're hiding behind. Okay, I could. 
Yeah, the one who looks a little bit like me, but who's really much... No, she's awesome. I have a great sister who's That's really wonderful. funny and is much, much funnier than me. And I basically... I like to make my, make my husband laugh too, but I basically want to make my sister laugh. Like, that is my motivation all day, basically. It's just to make her laugh, because if I make her laugh, you know, she won't kill me. So it's... Do you, do you steal any of her humor? All the time. Good for you. <laughs> Hand over fist. Yes, no, absolutely. I okay. steal lines from anybody and everybody who says anything witty. Okay. I good. just steal it all. But, good. But yeah. Good. So your sister's your... Are, do you have any other ideal readers beyond that? anyone who would enjoy it like I don't you know it's it's, I like to write you know I like to write the kind of books I like to read which is to say books that are just entertaining and and a little bit forgettable like not necessarily like deep but really pleasurable to read and you're like god that was fun and then you move on to something you know something else um like I like to write escapist stuff a little bit of sad a little bit of happy happy ending I guess that would be chick lit. <laughs> I don't know that it would, but um, again, well. I do like I do like a happy ending myself. Yeah. yeah. And um, in the the second book and in the third book, the characters from this book appear in the second book. They're not the primary characters, but they're in the background because mm-hmm. it's about this sort of community. And I like that. I like it when books do that. So when I came to write my own, I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. So that was it fun. One of the characters from the garden that's in your second book. Yes. Um, Lily and her kids show up in okay. the second book, and you find a little bit about what happened to her and Edward after the action of. But this I'm saying book. the other characters who are in the garden, the community garden. No, the garden. None of the. Oh no, I tell a lie like a rug. Yes, one of the characters from the gardening club does show okay. up very briefly. But it's in not. Passing. It's not like one of those characters becomes the main character. No. Okay. No, totally different. And then in the third book, again, totally different. But okay. these characters from the first two will show up in the third as well. Okay. God knows what I'm going to do after that. Okay. <laughs> no Stop idea. Stop writing. Yeah. Okay. That, that's it. Three and done. That's it. I don't think my sister's read my book yet. <gasps> but she's bought it, so that's okay. Um, you know, I mean, my book is very pink so there's I and I guess you know even when I wrote it I thought of it as like I feel women will relate to this book probably like you know 15 and up once like I had little kids walk into a reading and I was reading a story about this girl who goes to a swingers party and that threw me a little bit but the kids left so (laughs) so it was fine um so it's interesting because I, you know, unlike you, I kind of primarily saw my audience as female. Not that I wanted men not to read it, but I just thought women in general might res- it might resonate with women more. But I've gotten, like, a couple of the most recent reviews I've gotten have been from men. Mm-hmm. And um, at AWP last year, I remember a guy... Like I was at the at my publisher's booth, and they picked it up, and they read one line. It said, "It happened the year I joined Match.com," and then he said, "This is me. I'm getting the book." <laughs> so I think maybe I have a bias about you know what stories are more interesting to men, or what you know, or maybe even more like what stories men are interested in reading. I think. Uh, we enjoy more diverse reading than you know than perhaps we imagine we do. 
So did you have an ideal reader or just a female of a certain age? Because I see your mm-hmm. reader being sort of hip, living in this neighborhood. Um, Not the know. West Side? Well, well or, or, or a semi, you know, a, a hipster, edgy neighborhood, mm-hmm. hanging out at the coffee, drinking mm-hmm. intelligentsia coffee. You know, there's, there was, I, so I was curious whether that was part of, were you picturing that or that's, that was just the sort of uh, water you were swimming through, the air you were breathing as you were writing it? Well, I definitely didn't feel like the reader needed to be hip per se, but I, I definitely had like very specific Um, emotions that I was getting through like that I wanted to get through so for example there were like some of those intense feelings you have when you're 17 versus the intense feelings you have when you're like 21 you know or the or the things that really matter to you when you're 30 or you know what I mean Um, those emotions are all related but seem very visceral at different moments in your life. So I think because one of the my intents was to just get those sorts of emotions across, I believe that it was more going to be related to women. Yeah. Um, but uh, as the book's been out, I think that a little bit less, that sort of these life transitions are things that are, that are kind of common to all of yeah. us. Yeah. As I said, when I was reading it, I could like track myself at the different ages your narrator is, and like what I was doing, and similar crazy choices I might have made, and um, that was really enjoyable. So before the motorcycle, before the motorcycle, yeah, yeah, before that. Um, And my ideal reader was just anyone who's interested in having a bigger life, because I was thinking, and I really didn't want it to be. I've had a lot of people go, "Oh, motorcycles! I'm not into motorcycles." And I was like, "No, you don't have to be into motorcycles." The idea was anyone who's wanted to get outside of, you know, you're told these are sort of the lines you have to stay within and there's this hunger for something bigger and feeling like I'm ready to take that on and what does that process look like and how and, you know, what, what do you do with the, the shaky knees that, that accompany that. Um, the other thing I wanted to explore was fear. I'm someone who has been afraid of so many things my entire life and how learning to engage the fear to um, maybe in small ways take it on has made me feel like stronger every time I do it, you know, and doing the Wonder Woman stance and just like, okay, I can do this. Even if I'm only faking myself out, I can do it. And then how I move on to the, um, the next part. And I was really curious about the neuroscience of these things. So um, anyone who would be interested in neuroscience, I was hoping would um, get engaged with that. Um, so the next question I have, I have two more and then we'll take questions from the audience. Um, when readers finish your book, what is it you hope that they'll walk away with once they're done? Is it is it a feeling? Is it an image? Is it something that would sort of haunt them? Um, you know, what what's sort of the the last flavor they have once they they leave your stories, either one of you or both of you? Sure, ten. Okay. <laughs> um, I wanted them to have some feeling that other women have felt the same things that they felt even if it were in completely different circumstances so I guess in general some moment of visceral connection Um, I really want them to just be like 
that was awesome. I'm going to loan this to like three people. <laughs> or, you know, or, or ask them to buy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go right to social media. I'm going to take a picture of this and I'm going to be like, you've got to buy this book. That's what I, 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 I want people to come away and be like, that was really enjoyable and I feel enthusiastic about it and that was fun and God, I can't wait for it to write another one because that's, that's the, the bidness of it. But at the same time, the books have given me so much pleasure in my life, you know, like great books that there's nothing like it. The only thing better than reading a great book is flipping to the front and discovering that, that he or she has written like 18 others, yeah. Yeah. which is the single greatest feeling, possibly better than having children. And it's um, <laughs> because it's just, it's awesome. Like I can spend so much more time with this person. Right. And, and yeah, so that's what I'm hoping. That's what I dream I get. Right. You know, that's what I hope people... And people have been writing me letters about it, and it's very, very nice when people are like, I really enjoyed your book. My job sucks. And I came home, and I read your book, and it was great. It was like so, yeah. such an escape, such a relaxing book to read. Thanks a lot. And you're like, God, I can die happy. Like, it's just awesome. That's the best. Do you is think? It, it's like it really awesome. A little bit of sense of almost paying back all those authors who gave you that gift over the years. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a virtuous circle, yeah. right? You, yeah. you write because you love to read, and right. you read because you love to write, and right. It's, yeah, no, I mean, you, I try and spend as much time between the pages of a book as I can, yeah, you know, yeah. so, yeah. That is so joyful. Um, you already answered the question, mm-hmm. yes. Um, so uh, I just wanted people to walk, I wanted people to walk away th- thinking, there's this thing I've been thinking about, I want to, I want to sign up for a singing a voice class I want to learn to do a watercolor I want to um, take a different way to work tomorrow I want you know I want to challenge myself in some way and if this woman who was like terrified of absolutely everything could do these things then you know I can too um, and so that's, that's what I would hope um, so and the last question I have before we'll open it up to um, your questions is on the genesis of the book. Uh, I read that um, Abby, your book came out of fantasizing about your own husband's death. Yes. That, <laughs> maybe maybe you tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> and things when I when I say that, which is true, um, he laughs, but he doesn't realize how much danger he's actually in. <laughs> No, I just, I think we just had a fight, you know, one of those stupid fights about something stupid. And I was like, you know, driving the kids to school or something, thinking, okay, so much easier. should I just kill him or should I divorce him? It's such so much paperwork. And, um, and I just started thinking about that. And of course, I mean, actually, we've been married, you know, coming up on 25 years. He's my best friend after my sister. And, um, I love him. You know, he's, he's still, I'm still happy to see him every time he walks through the door. Not, 100% of the time, but most of the time right. I'm happy to see him. Other times, you know, he has to do that because I'm throwing stuff. But it's it's a good marriage. You know, it's a yeah. good, fairly boring, but good marriage. And um, so then you start thinking, like I said, the logistical challenges when you've been with someone for so long and you have kids, your lives get totally intertwined, like on a practical level. Right. And I'm interested to how you divorce someone after 25 years. I'm like, ooh, I have to read about that. <laughs> um, because it's that, the disentangling of it yeah. is so... It's a nightmare. Yeah. Like everything, your bank statements, your gas bill, your, everything is intertwined. You're, you're essentially one entity as far as the government and the law is concerned. And so you're, to, to pull that apart, I think, is pretty amazing. Um, and so I started thinking about what would that actually be like. And at the time I had, um, well, during the course of writing the book, which took a really long time, I had a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a baby at the same time. So I had three kids under five. And so 
there's just a lot going on. Yeah. And there's this definite sense of there, I cannot stop to have a moment for myself or think about or have a nervous breakdown about this because they're constantly hungry and then they want to go to bed or whatever. And so it's like <laughs> you, you just have this feeling of pro- propulsion. You're just like moving through life with someone's hand in the small of your back, you know. And so I just I was interested in how you would deal with that. Yeah. And then I just started writing and... There you go. It took seven years to write this one. Yeah. Oh, wow. Because I was the kids. Yeah. They're older now. And, and writing They're older the book now. is not. The next one took seven months. Thing. Totally oh, wow. different. Oh, wow. Yeah. Big difference. God, will you teach me your secret? I just put them all in school. They're all in school. I don't even have. Anyway. And, <laughs> and, and the Genesis. Uh, yeah. So tell well, us a little bit about where, yeah. where this came from. So I, I, I'll tell like a much more pragmatic story, but maybe it'll be valuable to anyone who's sort of working on first book slash short story collection. So I have I come from like a you know creative writing grad school background. If you get if you go for a PhD or an MFA, often you're 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 basically like you're not told to, but you are encouraged to write short stories because that's kind of what gets workshopped. So this is why you have all these MFA grads coming out out with short story collections versus I mean not necessarily with published collections, but coming out with short story manuscripts out of grad school, um, because you take all these creative writing classes where you write short stories. So I had a bunch of those, um, and I'd written a few more after it, and I was uh, reading and revising those, and also reading a lot of actual published short story collections, because I kind of wanted to get a sense of the market, what could I do to get my short story collection published, and one thing I realized fairly quickly is I couldn't have like a bunch of random short stories and expect to get them published in a collection, especially in this time, you know, with the publishing world the way it is, it needed to cohere somehow into a real collection, whether it's a very specific theme or whatever else. You know, if you're George Saunders, you don't need to do that, but like for pretty much everyone else, especially like a first-time author, I realized I needed to have something to pull it together. So um, I read through my stories and kind of saw a handful of them. They didn't have the same narrator, but I could edit them. So they did. Um, and they were at various points of a woman's life. So I, uh, at that point, I thought, okay, I'll do like a novel and stories with these linked short stories, have a common narrator. I revised the stories that were going to work. And then I wrote others that sort of fit into the gap. So the stories in here were, most of them were written in a short period of time, but there are a couple that were written much earlier. Um, but that's sort of the pragmatic story of how the book as a collection came along. It just, um, it, w- it, was, it was sort of like a um, very business decision, but on the other hand, I felt like it really stretched me creatively too, because it forced me to think about the narrative arc of an entire collection, even while paying attention to the individual pieces. Um, and my book started because I started to ride the motorcycle, and <laughs> my family, all the moms, I was I was the headroom parent at the school my kids went to. I mean, like everyone just looked at me like, and I thought, and my mother was was severely mentally ill, 
um, and institutionalized throughout my childhood and died at a, at a young age. And I started thinking, I'm losing it. I'm really losing it. Um, and so I wanted to look into, like, what is happening? Someone tell me that this is okay. And as it turns out, it's better than okay. So, um, But that's, that's where the book started from. And I didn't know that the science was going to become a big part of it, nor did I know, I got to say, that the divorce was going to become part of it because the divorce started unfolding as this stuff was going on and as I was writing it and it, then it became obvious that the, that the um, divorce had to show up in there. Um, there is one section that uh, CL brought up because she saw me read it another reading and I've only read from a, this section once but at one point the narrator accidentally has an orgasm on a motorcycle. It wasn't um, that accidental. Uh, on, on, <laughs> crossing the Mississippi River, right? Um, and they and the person who was organizing that reading had read an excerpt from the book and asked me specifically to read that. Um, so I said I would. And the book had just come out, and I have three now young adult children, and all of a sudden, all three wanted to go to that same reading. Yeah. And I was like, oh, God. You know? It was and a so, fun reading. And, um, and they, they came, they heard the excerpt, and they're like, oh, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, and, you know. Um, but um, a lot of the things that ended up showing up about the divorce and those sort of things were not what I would have chosen to put in there, but they were what happened. And part of being a memoirist is to like like deal with. Okay, fine. That's that's really what happened, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about it. So um, that's that. I I did. Um, I got another question. Yeah, the other question I'd love to ask both of you is both your characters. Um, deal with relatively heavy things um, and humor shows up but the, you both handle them very differently would you just talk a little bit about um, the role of, of humor to pain in your writing go ahead <laughs> I'd say lots of humor not much pain okay like it's not I, I think that um, I don't mean it's a British thing mm-hmm. like we don't we don't um, you're supposed to sort of stiff up a lip it, you know, okay. you're supposed to sort of pull through and not wallow. Right. You can privately wallow all you like, but um, but you're supposed to sort of pull it together. And sometimes I've thought that's actually a very bad way of dealing with it, but as I've gotten older, I actually think that there's a lot to be said for it in sort of just t- you know, allowing time to pass, you know, and that just keeping going and eventually time sort of softens the edges of most things. So... Um, and it's also just the way that I am. Like I'd rather make a joke than burst into tears. So, or both. I mean, it's you know, it's fine. Whatever. And CL, in your book, like I said, there's there's some funny moments, but they're sort of ouch funny moments. Would you talk a little bit about? Do you see humor showing up? Um, yeah. Do you feel that he, that the humor helps uh, leaven some of the heaviness? Because it is the book is a heavy book in certain parts. Um, yeah, I think um, I think I mean one thing I've noticed is like when I read things out loud, not the passage I read today particularly, but that um, it often reads funnier out loud when I'm reading it than I think the experience of reading it by yourself would be, um, and. I guess I've always kind of liked books with sort of like a wry, dark sense of humor where you don't really laugh out loud, but you sort of just like grin inside, but you can't tell by looking at your face. (laughs) I like those kinds of books. So um, I think, 
you know, humor is such a broad term. Yeah. I feel yeah. like it's, uh, you know, I love like the laugh out loud humor in the excerpt you just read, but I also really like the humor where um, you don't you don't even realize you found it funny or humorous until like later. Well, or your characters do things, or your character does things that is almost uh, self-implicating. Like sure. she makes herself look really bad in mm-hmm. different, and in a way that we all recognize. And but it's not done in sort of a, it's almost tongue not tongue in cheek, but mm-hmm. it, it's kind of funny because she she does such stupid stuff sometimes. You know right. that we all do. Yeah. And she may not see it, but the author clearly sees it, and the reader sees it with the author. So there's that sort of it, it lightens some of the heaviness in other moments, like the Match.com when you brought that up. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah, I think it's like so many of the things that we choose to do that seem so rational at the time are so ridiculously bad decisions that <laughs> to anyone else, you know, they can tell they're really bad decisions and they're such bad decisions that they're funny. Yes. But yes, like yes, exactly. to you, it seems really serious and you're doing it with like very serious intent. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, that's the kind of thing, even in TV, that's kind of what I like. People just making really dumb choices, but very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Those are all the prepared questions I have, so why don't we open it and see what questions people have. Yes. Um, I'd be curious as to the first time you published, uh, what your difficulties were, how you found a publisher or an editor, and got it out there. Did you get a lot of rejections? What was, what was your path to becoming a published author? Anyone want to take that? Um, so, uh, well, um, so I did. Um, I got a job writing, ghostwriting a novel uh, because a friend of mine had introduced me to an agent. And the agent, she had been, she had been, my friend had been offered this job. She's a ghostwriter, and she'd been offered this job and didn't want to take it or couldn't take it. And she said, "You should call my friend. She can write it for you because it was fiction. So it was ghostwriting a piece of fiction for a celebrity." So I did that job, and then I shared this this manuscript with that agent. And that agent, she liked it very much, but she wanted to make it sexier mm. and more of a romance. And it's not actually a romance. It's really, I mean, there is a romance in it, but it's not about a romance. It's not a book where the guy saves the girl, because I hate that. And, um, and so it's really about the sort of romance between a woman and her sister, Anyway, so this agent held on to it for a while, and I had—I sort of spent a couple of years trying to revise it, and I rewrote it like a million times, mm-hmm. and I just couldn't get to where she was happy and I was happy. Mm-hmm. So in the end, I just put it aside for a couple of years. Then another friend introduced me to a different agent, who was like, "This is great," and she sent it out and sold it in a month and a half. So it was like yeah. I was very lucky yeah. that I found the right agent at the right time. Um, I think I sent out a version of this book early on. I think I sent it to 50 different publishers early on and not a dicky bird. Just the sound of, <laughs> you the sound mean, of like crickets. Your agent sent it out? No, I just like cold sent it to everybody. Oh, wow. Yeah, slush pile all the way. <laughs> my, agent, my agent is Alexandra Machinist at um, ICM in New York. And she's awesome. She's terrifying and awesome. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, she's great. And so it's, it's really, for me, that was the, the thing. 
And also, I'd worked in advertising for a long time, so I was really used to getting to writing a load of shit and having it be rejected continuously. So it's like I got, I was not quite so, I wasn't really, being rejected doesn't bother me because it's, you just get used to it. You just build up a nice scab. Because people who don't know what they're talking about, like, that's crap, I don't like that at all. And you're just like, okay, whatever. You just go write it again. So it's, that's good, you know, practice getting rejected. It's good. Um, the fiction, there was a fiction piece, Ghostwriter for Celebrity. Yes. So creative fiction? Yes, yes a novel. Misrepresented, not No, exactly. A, fi- a piece of fiction, a novel. How often is that? Com- I think oh, it's, it's pretty common. common. So that people's creative efforts are being written by others, mm-hmm. not just their personal life Exactly yes. so, yes. yes. Oh, Forever. probably since the dawn of time. <laughs> I think okay, probably since the dawn of time. Invented, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so you can be suspicious of all this fiction. I, I would imagine if you have se- if you have seen a celebrity talking, and you haven't been struck by his or her articulacy, if that's even a word, and you haven't, and you're not thinking, "Cool, she's got a lot of good ideas, and I'd love to hear more of her." Probably she didn't write the book. You know, it's uh, that would be my suggestion. Uh, my wrote a bestseller particular celebrity's memoir. Now, I knew this was being done, and that seems somewhat ethical in a certain sense because... Oh, yeah, ghostwriting a memoir is, is totally above board, and often those writers get credited on the cover as well, yeah. you know, this, with so much research. This is sort of like... Well, like uh, a Richard Patterson, is that it? Well, James, Patterson. James, James Patterson. Patterson has a whole business. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. they hire people to do all those mm-hmm. books that are under his name. I mean, there's a number... Um, the woman who wrote Flowers in the Attic... B.C. Andrews? Yeah, there's there's still books. I think she's dead, and there's still books. <laughs> she's remarkably successful for a dead woman. Yes, yeah, no, she's exactly. doing very well. So there's still books being written in her name, but she's obviously not writing them. So yeah, there there are like when you when you see an author who's publishing more than a book a year, they're not going to be able to Literary write. Literary Well, it depends on it's a wide. Not. If you use the word literary in its widest possible sense. You know, I mean, it's a, my, mine was sort of a beachy, silly, beachy, silly read. And my name is in the acknowledgments at the back next to the hairdresser. So it's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it was on the check, which is all that yeah, really matters. Yeah, nice. yeah. Was I paid a lot? Yes, I thought so. I was quite surprised by how, how much she was willing to pay someone else to do all the work. Um, but she got paid more than I did. Yeah. So you don't get percentage? No, no, no. Once, it, once you hand over the manuscript. You're on the, in the contract, you're the writer, and she's the author. That's really Well, what was good, she went on TV and talked about her process. Her yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah, it was awesome. Oh, I don't know. I think she did it the same way she designs her fashion line oh, and God. her jewelry. You know, I think that she goes to a designer with skill and talent and says... I'm thinking 1920s, but semi-precious stones. And then they, like, go away and they design a load of crap. And then they put a tray and she goes, I like that one and that one and that one. That's it. My other question is to here with me. Sorry. Um, your background is very interesting. Which and I can imagine what must have been going through your head being raised by a woman. Yeah. You loved her, obviously. Yeah. Um, 
will we ever hear that story? Yeah, the book I'm working on right now is a novel, and it's a, the it's a young protagonist who um, lives in Los Angeles and is seeing apparitions of the Virgin Mary, and that's her way of coping with what's going on. And it's still unclear to me as the author whether she's actually seeing these or not, whether she's being visited by the Virgin Mary or not. I think the way you speak is so important because so many people are suffering trauma right now yeah. and are expected to function fully in um, a disrupted society. Thank you. Oh yeah, about oh yeah, you got your sure. So um, I found I did not go to publishers directly. I guess I'm not that brave. Um, oh, stupid. <laughs> Um, so I had the experience where I found my agent fairly easily. Like I had like a list of my top ten agents that I would want, and I sort of wrote one a day for ten days, then took a break, and then eventually I got the first one on the list. So because that went so well, I was like, this book is going to sell very easily, um, and it ended up taking forever. I think it was over a year before we found a home for it. We went to the big publishers, and it went to a couple editorial meetings, and I was like, they're going to compete for my book. It's going to be so great, and I was like flying off, bouncing off the walls, and then they were like, no. <laughs> so he went to smaller publishers, and then we went to like indie presses, and then eventually it won, uh, it won Red Hen Press's um, fiction award, so it finally did find a home. But it ended up being an extremely, extremely um, long process. I mean, relatively speaking, like there are people who... 20 years. Yeah. 20 years, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So um, I feel very lucky that it is out there, though, because there are lots of great collections that never see the light of day. Um, and I, you didn't ask this, but one thing I wanted to add was like um, those sorts of like struggles with like the agent relationship and finding a publisher, they don't really end, I feel, like yeah. after the first, it's always like a new, a whole new thing. So it's not like, um, it's not like you're set after the first book. With the next one, you have the whole new set of questions and the whole new set of challenges and ambitions and, um, and things like that. It's helpful, but people change agents all the time. Agents drop them, they drop their agent. Um, so it's not like when you find an agent, it's a done deal. It's it's still, you know, it's it's like anything else in life where the continuous up and down uh, journey kind of continues. Um, this is my fourth book, and um, I've had the same agent throughout. And what was interesting this time, and it shows how publishing has changed over the years. My first book was Then in the Art of Knitting, which was a bestseller, and it was about knitting. Um, and I, I wrote one chapter, and my agent sold the book. You know, I basically wrote it in a month, turned it in, she sold the book, and we were gone, you know. Wow. And the next two books after that sold similarly. And then by the time I was ready to do this one, um, we went back to the drawing board 
numerous times, and the proposal, instead of being 20 pages that was done in a month, was 90 pages that took two years. And then she, we were both you know, ready with it, felt that we had a handle on it, and then she went out with it um, and sold it at that point. Um, but so in the old days, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, it was it was just a little bit easier to sell books. Now it's gotten that much harder, and um, the, the whatever if you're selling it, for those of you who don't know the business, if you're selling a nonfiction book, you can sell it in a proposal form. If you're selling a collection of short stories or a novel, you usually have to have the manuscript done. Um, so. As far as proposals go, it's changed, and now they're much more detailed. They want a lot more work. You've done, you know, 80% of figuring out this book um, and a lot of the writing before, you know, the first person even looks at it. Any other questions? Yes. Um, I, I feel like it's always helpful. I, I write, and I like to hear it when I talk to writers about um, their <laughs> worst moments uh, in writing their books, like I liked your, I mean, I think like for me, I liked your, what you were saying about just getting inured to rejection, because mm -hmm. then your lows can't be that low, because you're like, oh, so I was rejected, that's, that happens every day, <laughs> this, right. it's just another day, um, so I think like, when I was very young, like in undergrad or early grad school, like rejection days would kind of get me down a lot. But now it just feels like par for the course. Um, I don't know. I feel like the days that are hard for me is when I fall out of my writing rhythm. And then like trying to get back in feels extremely painful. You feel like you have no life purpose because you haven't written and that's what your identity is kind of tied up in, um, but then once you get back into the rhythm, you start to feel better. I don't know. I would agree with that, actually. I think the, um, the hardest part for me is the, always the beginning, like the starting another thing. Like right now, the book that I'm writing now, I'm, it's like, honestly, it's like shitting a shed. Like I have no <laughs> idea how it's going to come out, and I have no idea where I'm going with it. I'm not, I, I have this, I, I kind of have an idea. But it could go. I could throw it all away tomorrow. Like it's. I'm not at all happy right now. Thank you for asking. So, um, <laughs> this is uh, so right now sucks. But then you get to you get. And also the thing is also for years I was writing. Like I always wrote every day when I could. But I I I'm really good at finding excuses not to work. So I had kept having these children. That was great. And then <laughs> then I stopped having children so that I don't have that excuse no anymore. Excuse. None, ex none, none excuse. I'm a writer. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's really hard. And, and it's like I think it's like going to the gym or something. Like you go if you, everyone you hear people talk about loving to go to the gym, and you're always like, okay, like I don't. All right, if you say so, but I don't get it. And writing's like that. Like the first few times, it's just. Really and then you get into a rhythm and suddenly the story starts telling itself and then you're just then it's great that, that, that once you're in the middle and you're like no my god I suddenly know where I'm going and then you're like I can't write fast enough because I'm going to forget that's awesome you know but every time I write something I'm convinced that it's shit convinced ask my sister every single time at the beginning of every book I'm like I'm never going to be able to write another book and then when I was trying when they were trying to sell this one I was like that's it that other book I was talking about before that's it that's going to be the highlight of my career is I wrote a book for some fucker else and, 
<laughs> and it's still, you know, it's, yeah. It's Wait, not to, easy. To add to the, um, the, like, rejection thing that I was saying earlier, <laughs> um, so, like, there was... I, I worked on a novel after this, and I had worked on a draft for like a year. I'd hired an editor to look at and everything. I sent it to my agent, and he took forever to read it because I think he it bored him. <laughs> and eventually, uh, we had he had he was encouraging, but he was like. Um, more needs to happen. <laughs> like basically, it was like write a totally new manuscript, and like I don't even remember that as a bad day. It was it was like you have to start all over. But it's like you hear that. Like I'm so used to that. Like that day didn't feel worse to me, or or it didn't even feel bad. The, much worse are the days when I feel like the actual work of the writing is not being done. Um, for me, it was I had um, taken a sabbatical from the university where I teach, and I had moved to French Polynesia, and told everyone I'm going there to write this book, and I'm working on it, and I'm working on it, I'm working on it, and I got an email from my agent, and we were just like at this. I mean, she had read pages, and she had one vision. It was like you were talking about. With, she had one vision of what the book was supposed to be, and I had another vision, and we were just slamming into each other, and it was like holy shit, I'm going to have to change agents. I'm going to have to... And I had left going, like, I'm going to come back with a finished book, and we're all... You know, and I told everyone, I'm moving to Tahiti, you know? I'm coming back with a book. And now, like, it was all blown up. Like, everything I had... I had thought I knew about what I was doing was destroyed. Um, we ended up coming to an impasse, finding a way to each other, being able to figure it out. Um, but there was about a week where I sat at Cook's Bay, named for Captain Cook, and just cried into the bay and swam so my tears could join the bay. And, you know, it, it felt awful. But then, you know, then you figure it out. And, you, and it was at the point of either I'm going to leave this agent or she's going to come around to see it my way because I can't... I can't write something that's not what I need to write, so. Um, yes. Wait, so did she basically come around? Yeah, we do, we, we, we okay. yeah, yeah, she okay. did, kind of. I mean, we, she would say I came around, I would say she came around. Okay. We, we came to um, consensus on what we were doing and um, were able to go forward. But, you know, this was after I probably had... I don't know, 250 pages of the thing written. And she was like, you know, uh, no, no, you know, we need this. And I'm like, no, no, we need this. So. Actually, can I just, I actually wrote half, for the same person I wrote the, I lied the previous book about, um, I wrote half of a second book. We were contracted to buy a second book. And I get like, not half, but maybe like 30,000 words in, right? And I've sent her an outline and all the rest of it. And she's suddenly like, this is not. This is not what I want to write. Not that she was writing. This is not yeah. the book I, I was writing. And I was. And I honestly think that she had never read the proposal. That all her folks had been like, "Yes, that sounds great. Super. Off you go." And so I had started writing, and she's like, "No, this is not what I want to do. Um, you have to start over." And I'm like, "Okay, but then you have to pay me more because I just wrote what we had an agreement." And she's like, "No, I'm not going to pay you more." And I'm like, well, I'm not going to write you more. Yeah. And then, pshoom, that was it. Yeah. End of story. And irritatingly, that half a book I cannot use. Like, that half a book just has to, to her, sit. It belongs it? to her. Yeah. To work for hire. Um, can you tell us who the celebrity is? Are you oh, under? Cool are you under? under? <laughs> um, no, I've got, no. Okay. 
Because I, I, I know in some cases people can, some they can't, so I'm not going to push on No, I can't. Are we, two more questions? We have two, time for two more questions if people have them. Um, so I guess your agent realized she could pull it off when she, she realized, I mean, you, and you can do anything if you can pull it off, I guess. But how does humor, you two are very funny, I'm not familiar with your work, but you two seem to use humor, really, you deploy it. And I'm just wondering if that's part of your writing that you feature in, or if you're aware of humor when you're writing, or as a not as not being a funny person, I just really want to know what humor does for you. I think it's hilarious that you're saying I'm humorous, <laughs> because yeah, I don't. I and when I work, when I've given readings and people start laughing, it always like makes me want to duck under the table because I didn't necessarily mean to be funny. Like well, I'm funny accidentally when I'm funny, so. Um, but I love your humor because yeah. it seems you seem like it's it's a, a a tool that you know how to use. Well, my my, my sister taught me everything I know. <laughs> no, I mean it's, it's I think it's bringing in advertising. Honestly, it's okay. just like you 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 it's sort of defensive humor. Okay, you know. Does it help in the structure of storytelling? I don't know. I struggle so much with structure. Like it, that's the thing that I hate the most. Like, it's not, the reason this is based on, honestly, the reason this is based on a gardening class was because I was desperate to find some kind of literal structure that I could hang the book on. Mm. Because I'm no, I'm so crap at plot. And I could write conversations and characters all day, and that's my favorite thing, is to write characters and conversations that they have. But otherwise, it's just really boring. If all they do is yak, right? So I had, I had to make up a structure. And in the next one, similarly, I, have to create, I had to create a structure to hang it on. Otherwise, I can't move forward. So humor is the easy part for me. Structure is the really, really hard part, plot. So I guess you just use whatever you're good at and hope to God that you can somehow kludge together whatever you're not good at. So you say if humor is a defense, does it actually allow you to angle right? Does it, let you, does it get you out of a tight spot? When I write, I mean, you mean can I make, can I get funny to get out of a bad... Well, if the, if the writing is crap, it doesn't matter how funny it is, right? So if it's... If it's um, I think readers are too discerning. If if I'm just if I was just writing something that didn't hang together, but it might be amusing on the surface, I think it would still suck. I think it would, people would be like, ah, "Silly woman." Okay, last question. Um, another logistics question: Are there particular times of the day that you do your writing, and how do you do it so that nobody interrupts and <laughs> live alone? <laughs> Well, or wake up early. I don't know. Yeah, early morning and headphones. Yeah, I was gonna say uh, Bose noise canceling headphones are my superpower. Um, With those, put those on, and if if there is noise that's still getting through, then the sound of rain through the noise canceling headphones, and I'm good to go. Yeah, Yeah, I always start with a playlist. Like I always, music is what always starts me going on any new idea. It's always a piece of music or song of some kind that will spark an idea. So I, I start, the first several weeks are spent putting together a playlist for a particular book or a particular project, and then I just, I get up as early as I can, I take the kids to school, and then I put the headphones, hopefully, put the headphones on, and it just p- plays on repeat, so I don't really hear it, but it just it cap- recaptures the mood, whatever that mood is. Then I can never listen to them again, like once the book is done, I'm like... How many songs are on the playlist? Not even that many. Sometimes it'll be like ten. You know, like so it's maybe half an hour of music or forty minutes of music, and it just goes round and around. 
Sometimes they drop off, sometimes new ones come on, but that's always the very first thing. Um, I'd like to thank Skyline and everyone for hosting us. I'd like to thank Natalie for coordinating this. Um, we're here if you'd like any books signed, and thank you so much for being here. And yay for readers, because without readers, we would have no one to write for us. So thank you yeah. for um, being readers. Thank you. Um, just a couple of housekeeping things. Um, first of all, thank you all for coming. Uh, I don't know how many of you are uh, members of the Women's National Book Association. Yay. Yay. If you're not, please sign up for our newsletter and hopefully eventually you'll become a member because we have amazing events like this all the time where we have a cool writing and reading tribe that you get to become a part of. Um, let's give it up for our authors. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.